0: Greetings, welcome to another episode of Hear Her Sports, a female athlete podcast for all things female athlete. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. Each episode shares a conversation I've had with an absolutely amazing female athlete or woman in sport. We always cover so much ground from training, nutrition, psychology, to science, research, mental health, and coaching. Joining me today is Dr. Angie Rigel, who has been studying for over a decade the effects of high-cadence cycling in individuals with Parkinson's disease. Angie is a professor of exercise science and exercise physiology in the School of Health Sciences and the Associate Director of the Brain Health Research Institute at Kent State University. She has been funded by NIH, the Davis Finney Foundation, and the Research and Development Service U.S. Veterans Affairs. Angie's research with Parkinson's disease is fascinating. She even developed and continues to improve a smart bike that we hope will eventually be available for home use. Meanwhile, Angie shares ways you can adapt what she's learned in the lab for your own training and brain health. Angie and her team collaborate with InMotion, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people manage their Parkinson's disease. I've seen the effects of Parkinson's, and it is not a kind disease. That's why everything Angie is learning and developing is so exciting and hopeful we also talk about a broader view of her studies how aging and neurological disorders affect movement in humans and how exercise can be used to promote neurorehabilitation and brain health what that means for us is that moving being physically active exercising whatever you want to call it helps the brain and researchers are still learning exactly how that happens and by how much if that weren't enough angie is a competitive athlete herself and founded Stellarite Performance Training, an endurance coaching business specializing in female athletes over 40. Well, let's get to it and meet Angie. Well, hi, Angie. It's really great to have you on the show. I'm happy to be here, Elizabeth. You know, full disclosure, we are friends from the cycling world in Cleveland. And, you know, I never knew what you did. And then one day, I think we were watching the marathon or something with our friends, And I was telling you about this really great study I had discovered about Parkinson's. I've always loved this study. And, you know, my father-in-law had Parkinson's. So, you know, it meant a lot to me. And you were like, oh, that's my study. I remember that. Yeah. And I'm glad I didn't mansplain it. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been great. Anyway, what you're doing is super cool. So I'm so glad that you're here, that we can talk about it. And I have tons of questions about your study. But before we get into some of those fun details, you know, I really think I could use some basics. And I hope I'm not going to get us too far into the weeds. But let's start with like, what's the makeup of the brain? So like the neurons and all those interconnections, because isn't that foundational to what you study?
1: Yes, it is. So if we're talking specifically about um, the neurons that produce movement, which is important in a discussion of Parkinson's disease, there is an area that is called the motor cortex. And the neurons that start there actually go out and send information to all of the muscles throughout the body that tell the muscles to move. And during that pathway, there are many areas where you can have disruptions in that pathway that will alter the way that the muscles receive signals. So that's part of the reason why we get some very specific motor function changes in Parkinson's that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later.
0: So, I mean, maybe maybe you already explained this, but like what is causing movement? So the, the brain decides to move and then sends these decisions out to the muscles. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes. So okay. there are neurons that are Uh, that start in the motor cortex they send signals via axons that travel through the brain through the brain stem all the way down the spinal cord and then um, they synapse what we call they they connect with the spinal cord neurons and then there's a second set of neurons that branch out from the spinal cord that go to the muscles at each level of uh, that spinal cord so say for example you're talking about the leg muscles Those neurons travel from the motor cortex all the way down to the lumbar levels of the spinal cord. And then they connect with neurons in the spinal cord that then have a secondary neuron that branches out to uh, the specific muscles of the lower leg.
0: I'm sure listeners will gather that your study is on Parkinson's and they heard that in the intro anyway. So what is the cause of Parkinson's? Like my idea is to sort of set up what you do with some basics so that when you describe what you do, that we we have a better understanding of what's happening.
1: Certainly. Certainly. So Parkinson's disease is a loss of neurons that are actually present in the brainstem uh, called substantia nigra neurons. And they produce a very important chemical called dopamine. And dopamine is very important in the health of the neurons and helping the neurons that produce movement send their signals. So in Parkinson's, um, we don't know why these dopaminergic neurons die, but they, when they die, we get loss of that dopamine and then it disrupts those circuits, normal pattern. And you get uh, the symptoms of Parkinson's, which are usually tremor in many cases. You also will get slowness of movement, And you get some um, postural issues that result from that. So it's really a disruption of the chemical pathways that are important in sending those signals uh, to the muscles throughout the body.
0: That was so interesting to me. I had not realized that dopamine was also involved in movement. I mean, I'd already always heard it sort of in relation to serotonin and, you know, uh, sort of more mental aspects of what was going on.
1: It is, yes. It's very essential in that, that circuit for motor output.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. Let's just go to your research. You've been doing this research with Parkinson patients and cycling for, I think, more than a decade, right? Yes, I have. Yeah, so describe what those studies are.
1: So the initial work um, that I started doing, which is what we talked about uh, during the marathon, Was a work that I did as a postdoctoral fellow at Cleveland Clinic. And I started there in 2006. So this is when that work started. And I was working with a a researcher in the biomedical engineering program. And he was a cyclist. And he was also interested in Parkinson's and, and movement and how Parkinson's disrupts movement. So he said to me, as a cyclist, he said, I really want to do this study where we look at how cycling cadence affects the motor symptoms, because he said, I rode a tandem with a friend of mine uh, several weeks ago. And she said that after she rode the tandem with me, she felt like her Parkinson's symptoms were reduced. And he thought, well, why is that? And what he came up with was that it was probably due to the fact that in riding with her, the cadence or the revolutions per minute that she was doing on the tandem, because with a tandem bike, two people have to move their legs at the same cadence, Um, he thought that that was perhaps the reason why. So we took that idea into the lab, and we, we brought a tandem bike into the lab, put it on a trainer, and then we actually tested that systematically. And we found, we had two groups, we had a group that just cycled on their own, and they had uh, their cadence was about 60 revolutions per minute, which is pretty standard, you know, for someone who isn't a, a trained cyclist. And then we trained another group with an able-bodied trainer at about 80 RPMs, and we found that the group that did the higher cadence showed greater improvement in their motor symptoms, but reduction in tremor, improvement in, in speed of movement. And so we uh, we continued to do that work, and did some fmri work to look at areas of the brain that might change. We did show some some increase in blood flow with fmri in areas that are important in this this circuit that produces movement. And then when I started at Kent State, I wanted to take that even further and try to develop a motorized bike that could mimic what a trainer does on A tandem bike so that you could actually have the person ride on their own without a tandem bike with a similar scenario. And so that's the work that we've been doing at Kent for over a decade. And we can talk a little bit more about the specifics of that.
0: I think it's also really funny that in the initial studies with Cleveland Clinic, you were the one, you know, riding around with Parkinson's patients as part of the study.
1: I was, yeah. I, I uh, did many of the training sessions, and then I had a friend of mine who was also a cyclist. I uh, offered to give her a job, and her job was to come in and ride the tandem bike with the <laughs> patients.
0: Sounds like a lot of work.
1: It was, it was. We actually calculated how much work the trainer did versus um, the person with Parkinson's who was riding, and it ended up being, in in a lot of cases, that the trainer did about 75% of the work. So wow. it was challenging depending on on the you know the ability of the individual who was riding with us. So it was a good it was good training and working at the same time for me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. So this new bike now mimics that person. Can you describe more of that new bike, the motorized bike? Yes. Yeah, so
1: what we did is I collaborated with some engineers at uh, Case Western Reserve University, and they actually did their their technology magic, and they were able to design a controller that mimicked what a person did on a tandem. And the specifics of that was that when someone rides a tandem, you always have this element of, of working with and working against the other person who's riding with you. So you have this constant push and pull where one person may be putting in more power versus the other person. And so we actually programmed that into the controller. So when you set the motor at 80 RPMs, there's actually a, a random variation that the motor speed produces around that set point that actually mimics what somebody would do on a tandem bike. And what we found was that was a really important component to it. So it has a dynamic element where, although you set the speed, it's constantly changing and giving the person riding this variable feedback in terms of of the cadence. And we found that was really an important element. So it's it's what makes this unique from any other motorized bike.
0: So... I want to establish that the speed is is not a component of it, it's the cadence. Like, from your original study, you were not dictating speed, you were dictating the cadence. Correct. Correct. So have you figured out, like, what it is about the cadence? And you mentioned that that variability was important, but there also seems there has to be something about the leg speed.
1: Yes. So what we think is happening is that... Um, When you ride a bike, you are producing motor output to turn those pedals. But you are also receiving sensory feedback via receptors that are, you know, in the feet that give you information about pressure on your feet. There are receptors um, in the muscles that give you information about muscle length and muscle force. And those sensory receptors send information back to the motor cortex And they can alter the output of the motors and the activity of the muscles. So what we think is happening is that that high cadence is giving the brain an input that is different from what usually these people would see. And so that sensory input has the ability to alter motor output. And we think that's the mechanism of the high cadence. And we think the dynamic piece is an important because these sensors also are very sensitive to rate of change of force and
0: rate of change of muscle length. That's very interesting. Are changes then happening inside the brain? Like permanent changes? So we don't, what we do
1: know is that these changes that we see do last for a period of time. Of the work that we've done thus far, we've seen that the changes are, you know, up to 72 hours, what we've tested. But we have had people say to us that they feel better, you know, for a couple days. So when you exercise on the motorized bike, you get an effect that lasts for a period of time. But you also need to keep doing that. <laughs> so it's not it's not go exercise for a small period of time and then you have these lasting effects. You need to right. keep giving the brain that input.
0: I'm trying to think about that because that then means that there isn't, um, there isn't like a structural change that's happening necessarily.
1: So what we think is that there may be a change in uh, some of the chemicals that are released f- in the brain that could potentially promote a longer-term kind of neuroprotective effect, but we haven't specifically tested that.
0: Got it. So it's a little challenging
1: to do that because they're very obviously long-term studies.
0: Sure, sure. You, You work with Parkinson's patients. Does this work you know, relate to other neurological disorders or other brain injuries? I mean, can you expand what you're doing or can you extrapolate what you're doing to other patients?
1: We do think that it could be extrapolated. Um, I did have a student who used this paradigm in an individual with a motor neuron disease. And that person actually showed similar improvements in movement. That was a case study. and um, We have published that so you can get it online. And we think that it could be helpful for other neurological disorders, such as multiple sclerosis and or perhaps stroke. We have not done those studies, but I know that other people have done similar work with high cadence cycling in Down syndrome. There was a small study that looked at it in stroke. So people are are starting to do this. In the long term, we would like to do that. But right now, we're focused primarily on Parkinson's.
0: All of those diseases or disorders that you mentioned, they all seem very different. I mean, stroke is certainly different from Parkinson's. Yes, they are. That's interesting. So something sort of in the bigger picture is happening inside the brain, or that's the theory, I would suppose.
1: Yes. The hypothesis is uh, potentially that this could promote short-term changes, but also the longer-term changes could be due to release of some neurochemicals, specifically one called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And we know that exercise in general in healthy people increases the release of this chemical. And it is important in maintaining the health of the neurons. It also helps repair neurons. So, We've hypothesized that that is potentially one of the mechanisms. And like you said, if we get release of that chemical over the longer term, then it could potentially help neurons repair over the longer term and potentially be neuroprotective.
0: I don't know if we already talked about this, but what are the Parkinson's patients, you know, like what are they seeing as improvements?
1: Well, they tell me that they feel like they can move better. I've had people tell me that they feel like they don't have to take their medications, their Parkinson's medications, after they do the cycling. We've gotten really positive feedback from people. So they they are luckily willing to volunteer to come and, and ride the bike. And we're, we're doing studies right now. Um, we're doing them at Kent State University. But soon we're going to be offering the study at a place called in motion, which is a Parkinson's exercise studio in Beechwood. So come June, we're gonna start doing the study there as well.
0: And what are, what is that study gonna be?
1: So right now we're doing a 12 session study over four weeks and we have people come in to uh, either the lab or at in motion in the summer to uh, exercise three times a week on the bike. And we do that over a four week period. And then we do several motor assessments, look at how they move, look at gait and and balance, and look at the change in tremor and the change in movement speed over that, that period of time. And what we're trying to do with that is we are trying to capture a large cohort and a large database Because what we want to do next with the bike that we have is to make the controller of the bike basically intelligent. So right now we're manually changing the settings on the bike based on how the person performs. But if we collect a large enough data set, we'll be able to program the controller to be able to predict what a person would need at any point in time. And so we're basically developing a smart bike. We're developing a bike that will be able to, uh, to optimize the settings of the bike for that person. And the reason why that's important is because everybody with Parkinson's is different in terms of the types of symptoms that they have, the severity of the symptoms. So it's not one size fits all. You really need to personalize the therapy for each individual.
0: Okay, I, I heard you talk about that somewhere else. And I, I don't really understand that. So like, what are the variables that you're changing based on what things that you're seeing? So what
1: we're looking at now is there is a, a clinical scale that is done with Parkinson's called the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale. And it is a scale that looks at all of the Parkinson's symptoms and and it's evaluated by a clinician. And they will evaluate each of those symptoms um, based on a zero to poor scale. So when you do that, you get a value, you get a number, say this person has a 30. So what we're going to do is we're going to develop the smart controller that will look at where is this person now as far as their score on this clinical scale, and then it will predict what the uh, the characteristics of how much the bike alters the speed around that cadence set
0: point. So, I think I need another explanation of how that sort of the variability around the cadence. So. If I understood correctly, you set it at 80 and it will sometimes go to like 83 and sometimes it will go to 77. Is that?
1: Correct. It's variable. I mean, it, it, it changes fairly rapidly. So oh, okay. it's, it's subtle. It's subtle. The patients don't really feel it, but it is a variable um, output that makes sense. I can explain it in another way. One of the variables that we're measuring is something called entropy. And entropy is, is is something that isn't static, something that's always changing. So what we can do is we can capture the data from the bike after a person has ridden it, and we can calculate that entropy. And entropy gives us a measure of how much the motor speed is changing around that set point. And so that's really the variable that we're looking at. We're trying to optimize entropy. So we're trying to increase entropy based on the person's characteristics and how it is that they actually interact with the bike itself.
0: And is the bike dictating everything, everything that the rider is doing?
1: So what the bike does is it responds to what the rider is doing, just like a tandem, right? So if you're riding a tandem, then the two people are going to have to respond to what the other person is doing. And so what the bike is doing is it is, it has, it has a program, but it's also responding to what the person is doing. So it's important. The interaction between the person and the bike is an important feature of this.
0: That's super interesting. It's been a long time since I've ridden a tandem and I think I got on there for like a hot minute. So (laughs) maybe I need to try it again.
1: Right, so technically it's a bit challenging to understand, but the engineers are, are the ones that do that magic.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Endura Athletic. Endura Athletic is on a mission to create ethically sourced athletic apparel that empowers and supports athletic women's bodies. Rather than asking women to fit into clothes, Endura Athletic Apparel fits clothes to women, making space for powerful lats, broad shoulders, and strong legs. Through artfully designed, sweat-tested, and well-fitting apparel, women can tackle their workouts while feeling confident in their physique whatever shape it takes. Recently, I did my first run in a pair of Endura stay put shorts and love them. They definitely stay put. I had none of that typical creeping up of shorts legs and then having to yank them down over and over throughout the run. The waistband is also really nice and not restrictive. You can order your own stay put shorts and find out more at enduraathletic.com or on this episode's show
2: notes page. the outcome, and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the checkered flag.
0: Now, let's return to my conversation with Angie Ridgel and find out more about how exercise can be used to promote neurorehabilitation and brain health. So one of the things that keeps coming up whenever I am listening to you and when I've read it is, you know, like, how are you getting Parkinson's patients and, you know, like older folks even who I'm imagining have, you know, compromised balance and limited physical ability. So how are you getting them to do these sort of high intensity workouts? So we don't have trouble getting people to
1: do them. Almost everybody we bring in is successful in completing the paradigm. Just like what I talked about when we had the tandem bike in the lab, the motor is really doing most of the work. Mm. So it's not terribly challenging for them. We, we do get heart rate up and you know they will feel that effort. But again, the motor is doing most of the work, although I will say that they can't be passive. So one of the elements of the bike is that the newest version that we have, it we gamified it. So they have a, a screen that they're looking at, and we have a hot air balloon above a body of water. And their goal is to keep the hot air balloon above the water. And what that means is that they're actually putting forth effort. So if they are passive, if they let the motor do all of the work, the balloon will dip into the water. So we do have them do effort. But again, the effort is you know, it's fairly low to moderate level exercise. So they don't feel exhausted. They do feel better after it. And and we really don't have a lot of trouble having people interested in participating and or able to finish the protocols that we have.
0: Could somebody go out on, you know, like a, an exercise bike and do a sort of a fast pedal? And it, it wouldn't be the same as my impression because it doesn't have that interactive bit.
1: It wouldn't be the same, but I do tell people that, you know, if they go to the gym, they should try to focus on doing some fast paced intervals. And the way that they can do that is just make sure, you know, you lower the resistance on the exercise bike to as low as you can and really try to focus on that. So it's not going to be the same as what we're doing with our motorized bike. But we don't have something available now for people. Uh, We're getting to that point. But right now we don't have that. So I, I tell them, you know, if they go to the gym, really try to focus on on that, because it would have similar stimulus.
0: Right. I mean, it's interesting, this difference between effort and high speed of your legs. Yes. Yeah. What have you taken as the successes and failures? And I guess the remaining questions from your studies?
1: Well, one of the things that we are really focusing on now is to try again to uh, make the therapy optimal for a person. So, because everybody's different, you know, in the scientific world, you 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 recruit a pool of people, and then you capture their data and you put it together and, you know, you get mean values and and look at at how the group as a whole has performed. And one of the challenges with Parkinson's is that, again, even if you bring in a group of people that look similar, you still will have variability in their responses. And so that's one of the challenges because scientifically, you know, you want to get a large pool and say, you know, how, how has that group responded as a whole? But what we're doing with this optimizing and and making this smart is that we're going to try to minimize that variability among the individuals by giving people an individualized therapy.
0: And what are your long-term visions of of this work and where you would like to get? And I mean, you talked about developing a bike that people could buy, for example.
1: That's one of the long-term visions, but you know, in general we want to try to understand how this therapy can uh, alter the brain and and potentially you know not only improve people's quality of life at the moment and and try to improve how how they deal with the progression over time you know potentially you could use these paradigms for other types of, of therapy as well you know it's not just cycling per se but you could if you can zoom in on what are the characteristics that are important in altering the way the brain works, you could use you know, other types of, of paradigms to do that as well. So that's kind of the end goal is to really understand what's happening in the brain so that you can use that knowledge to produce other types of therapies that could potentially not only improve people's function and quality of life at, at a moment in time, but to potentially be neuroprotective. So perhaps we could come up with paradigms that would decrease the risk of people developing Parkinson's and or stave off uh, the progression, slow the progression of the disease so they could uh, have better quality of life over time.
0: So meaning that somebody gets a diagnosis of Parkinson's or some other neurological disease and early on they start doing these protocols and sort of degenerate more slowly? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, how have your studies impacted your own training or coaching? Because you do both of those things. You train and, and you coach.
1: I do. So I, I actually spend a lot of time working on cadence and I have my clients do that as well. <laughs> <laughs> so we do a lot of cadence drills, Right. Um, really focus on that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I really, I think, you know, just working on the quality of movement, working on the speed of movement, especially as we get older, you know, you know, that uh, as we get older, we have a tendency to have less speed of movement. So I think it's important just in general, to focus on that and focus on forceful and powerful movements to try to, you know, stave off age and or disease. Right.
0: Uh, this may be a good time to talk about, you know, very generally forget about your studies and whatnot, but like how exercise does help the brain and improves brain health. And, you know, I've even heard you say exercise is medicine.
1: It is. (laughs) Yeah. So exercise obviously has a lot of effects on, you know, it can improve cardiovascular fitness. It can improve muscle strength, but there's a lot of evidence to show that exercise has a pretty strong effect on the brain, specifically it increases brain blood flow, which is important, of course, to get oxygen and and uh, you know energy and other molecules to the brain. It also we know that it does increase several of these neurochemicals that I already mentioned, um, even in healthy people, like brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and those chemicals help the brain repair and uh, be healthy. And we also know that you know it can it can help people focus, there's a lot of evidence to support the role of exercise in improving cognitive function. And we know that in many different populations. Um, Young people, children, older people, and then there are people who are also looking at exercise in you know memory issues like Alzheimer's, although those studies are a little more challenging to do. So really it is, it has a lot of benefits for the brain and for the body as a whole.
0: How can people take this information, you know, and and use it at home? I mean, obviously you don't have the bike yet and, you know, not everybody's going to have access to those bikes anyway. So what can we, what can we do at home basically?
1: I think the most important thing is just to move and to focus on moving rapidly. Actually, there was a study that was done by a friend of mine named Beth Fisher at USC, and her work focused on um, treadmill and showed that the faster walking speed was important. And that was the basis for, for what uh, we were doing in the lab with cycling. And so I would encourage people, if they have a, have a bike at home or if they're out walking, outside or if they use a treadmill to really try to focus on on leg speed and try to get that that feedback from those sensors back to the brain. I think that's an important feature of uh, exercise and movement.
0: Is it objective leg speed or is it relative leg speed? Meaning, you know, like if you're older and you have more trouble moving, does just increasing the speed that you normally do make a difference?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So anything you can do to focus on speed of movement would still activate those um, those proprioceptors and, and potentially could, could alter the brain and brain chemistry.
0: And also to emphasize that it's not increasing effort necessarily, it's just increasing turnover. Correct. Correct. Okay. I heard you also mentioned somewhere dual task challenges. Can you explain that more? So dual task challenges
1: are... Challenges that have a motor feature and challenges that have a cognitive feature. So one of the typical paradigms for dual task would be having someone say, walk on a treadmill and do a uh, addition task, Hmm. or they could do a memory task. Something that's typically done in the lab is using a test called NBAC. And NBAC is a cognitive test where you ask the person, you you say a series of numbers or letters, and you ask the person to remember and give you the number that was said, for example, two back. So if you say one, five, seven, I would ask you to say, what's the two back? You would say one, right? So two two numbers back. So doing the cognitive tests and the motor tests simultaneously challenges the brain even more and can have a greater stimulus for change. Versus just doing a cognitive task or a motor task alone. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So next time you go out, you know, (laughs) probably don't do it on the road on your bike. But maybe, you know, if you're on the train or if you're out walking, try to think of a, you know, do math problems while you're you're out there.
0: (laughs) It sounds sort of hard. (laughs) It is. It
1: is. It's even hard for, uh, you know, non-cognitively impaired people.
0: Right. How did you get started in this work?
1: So it's a long history, but I've always been interested in how sensory receptors produce movement. And so actually back towards my my master's degree, I actually worked on sensory systems in fish. And then in my doctoral degree, I actually worked on sensory systems in insects. And we looked at how the insect sensory system produces movement, and we did movement analysis and that. And then um, I did the same thing when I did my first postdoc at Case. We were actually looking at how if you alter the nervous system, how it alters movement. And then I moved from that to working at uh, Cleveland Clinic.
0: Do you remember being interested as a kid in science and movement?
1: Well, I don't specifically, I was, you know, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to be, you know, a zoologist or a marine biologist. So I was always interested in in animals and, and uh, not specifically how they moved, but, you know, I grew up as a swimmer, Mm. you know, then transitioned to triathlon in my thirties. So I have always been interested in, in, you know, focusing on sport and movement, but specifically I, you know, was kind of an animal lover as a kid that's how I got started in biology and, and working with those people.
0: You mentioned that you swam as a kid. Were you competitive?
1: I was, Oh. I was on a swim team from age four to age 14. Wow. It was one of those, it was one of those summer leagues. Um, but it was a pretty competitive one. So we would go to meets all the time and And it was what I did when I was a kid. My parents actually had a pool in our house, so we always grew up swimming.
0: And what are you doing now for training?
1: So, right now I'm doing triathlon. So, I'm doing swim bike run. Um, I just recently got back from the national championship in Texas. It was a couple weeks ago. So, that was a short course national championship, and I did uh, the super sprint, the sprint the aqua bike, which is a Olympic distance swim bike. And then I did a, a relay. They have a new thing that they're doing that USA triathlon is doing at their events called the mixed team relay, where everybody does a super sprint and then you tag out. So the first person does a super sprint triathlon and then they tag the next person and then they'd go do a super sprint. It was really fun. It was uh, I had a team of, of three local people here from Cleveland. And then we had another woman that we met recently. So it was a, a mixed relay, two men, two women. And it was a lot of fun.
0: That's cool. Yeah, that was fun to watch in the Olympics too.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I have never done it before. But you know, the whole tag thing was fun. And then you run down the dock and jump in the lake. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize that the nationals would be so early.
1: Yeah, so what they're doing is they're, they have another nationals too. It's the the sprint Non-Draft Legal Sprint and Olympic Nationals is in Milwaukee in August, but this is, this was a combined, it was Duathlon Nationals, short course, and it was Sprint and Super Sprint, Triathlon, and then they added this relay. So they're starting to kind of consolidate these events. Hmm. So they really have two events now. They have this early one, and then they have the one that's in August. That's Sprint Non-Draft Legal and Olympic Distance. So the sprint that I did was actually draft legal. So it was kind of fun because I found a couple people, we were working together and, and uh, you know you have your road bike and, and that's a, a really fun element of it.
0: That totally changes the race.
1: It does, yeah. it does. And I'm actually pretty interested. I went to an event last year. It was called the Outspoken Women's Conference and the new CEO of USA Triathlon, Vic Grumfeld was there. And she's the first woman CEO of uh, USA Triathlon. And she, she's really great. And I was talking to her and I told her about my background with cycling and, and short course. And she said, you really need to focus on draft legal triathlon. And you need to, you know, try to train people and have that be an element of your business. And I thought, well, that's a really great idea. So we're working on, on that. I mean, draft legal triathlon, they don't do them they don't do that at local events around here, but USA triathlon is starting to, to support that. And so I think, you know, as triathletes, they usually don't know how to ride in a pack and how to draft. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting element that I could add to the coaching business with my background that, that really no one else is, is doing.
0: Right. How do you feel about competing? And, you know, like, how do your clients feel about competing in, in contrast to you know, I don't want to say just, but instead of going out and exercising on your own and doing it on your own and yeah.
1: Yeah. So we've talked about that a good bit. I mean, I think, I think a lot of the athletes as they get older and they've been, you know, competitive for so long, sometimes, um, that starts to kind of wear on them and they, they lose that drive to compete. So I have seen that in athletes, you know, I've seen it in myself at times, but in general with the people I work with it's important for them to have some sort of end goal to mm-hmm. motivate them to continue to you know add all the time so the people that we have you know they're they they want to compete but I noticed that you know as a lot of people get older they usually may compete less they may do less events and I really encourage people you know if they start to lose their mojo for doing what they've done you know for 20 years you should do something different like one of my clients decided she wanted to to do rowing and i encouraged her i said yes yes let's do that and so she's gonna she's gonna do some rowing this summer with some of the local uh, crew clubs and she's very excited about it. So, again, you know, we, we're using cycling and her strength to uh, cross-train for rowing. But we've shifted a bit. She was a triathlete. We shifted a bit away from triathlon and, and towards rowing. So I said, you know, great. I can work with that. Let's do
0: it. Cool. Yeah, rowing around here is great.
1: Yeah, she's pretty excited. So I'll see, see where that goes. But, but yeah, just a little shift in coaching there. But, You know, I always tell my clients, my job is to shift my coaching to, to meet your needs. So don't worry about it. I can adapt. Right. And uh, so we started giving her rowing workouts.
0: Do you think your studies give you a leg up and in terms of training? I'm just wondering if you're better able to take advantage of your time, I guess, knowing what you know. I mean, triathlon always impresses me as just taking up so much time for training.
1: It does. Yeah. I mean, I... I used to do, um, I used to do half Ironman distance. I don't do that now because I'm too busy, and I'm also more interested in in going short and fast. It's better for me. It's better, you know, for me to get the training in for my time, and I think it's really important. And you know, as a coach, we tell people this all the time. As you get older, it's better to go short and fast, and to really focus on that. So, um, with the short course triathlon, it's not too bad. You know, I'm lucky in that as a professor at a university, you have a, a decent amount of flexibility. And as a professor in an exercise physiology program, you know, if we say I'm going to exercise, nobody bats an eye. <laughs> Everybody is super, in fact, you know, people exercise in our facility, we have all the equipment, we have a standing desk, we have everything that we need to exercise. And, and nobody will question going out, you know, for a run or a bike, uh, if you have some time during the workday.
0: And are you strength training as well? Do you emphasize that?
1: I do. Yes. Yeah, that's super important. Yeah. So we try to do that at least twice a week, and and all of our clients that we coach, uh, all are doing strength training. Some are resisting, but they're <laughs> they're uh, <laughs> they understand that it's important, and once they start doing it, they say, "Oh, that's I feel really good. I feel really strong."
0: Yeah. Tell me more about the coaching with Stellaray.
1: Uh, I started Stellari. What now? It's it's almost nine years ago. Mm-hmm. So I had been, you know, I've been in triathlon since about 2001, and always, you know, was looking at at how people were training, and and with my background in exercise physiology, I I wanted to help people. I wanted to help people get better, specifically, you know, women, which is really our focus. And then as it started to get older. I thought, well, you know, I think my knowledge base and and what I've done could be helpful for people. So I decided to start this business. And it's Stellaride Performance Training, and we're a multi-sport coaching business. We do coach all ages and all genders, but really our focus is um, older athletes. So we focus on 40-plus, and we do that for two reasons. One, because that group is... uh, you know, important to try to optimize their training and also because that's the experience we have. And, uh, you know, I really want to help older people continue to do the sport, stay healthy. So that was really the reason for the business. I have a, another coach. Um, Pam is my other coach. So she and I kind of split the clients. Uh, we also have a group called Stellar Ice Speed School. And that's a unique group. It is a a 40 plus women's time trial team. And what we give to those people is we give them a training plan that's specifically focused on being good at cycling time trial. And we have them participate in some of the local time trial events we have. And then we also have a club. It's called Stellar Eye Hub Club. And Stellar Eye Hub Club is for people that maybe don't want coaching or they have another coach but they want to be part of our group in terms of the webinars that we do. We do monthly webinars for information for people. We also will do training rides, we'll do clinics. And so the people in hub club uh, can participate in those events without the coaching element. So that's what we're doing. We have about, I want to say 30 clients right now. So it's a pretty nice group and uh, we really try to make it a family.
0: You mentioned that you get resistance for doing strength training. Like what are you seeing as, you know, specific to this population of you said older women and and what they need to focus on and what they're struggling with a little bit?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the reasons why we get resistance is, you know, they don't think they have the time. But I tell them that this is a super important element. So, you know, I'd rather have you be in the gym than go out for an extra run. One of the things that that is a challenge is, you know, some people feel uncomfortable in the gym. They don't feel like they belong. They don't know what they're doing. They're all these people that, you know, they're lifting super heavy and, and it's it's a tad intimidating. So what we do is we either, you know, if they want to do something at home, we can make it work with a couple pieces of equipment. If they don't want to go to the gym. You know, that's my job as a coach to figure out what they can do with the equipment they have. Um, but if they do want to go to the gym, A lot of the time I'll meet my clients at their gym and I'll go through and choose exercises based on what they have at that facility and also use machines or equipment, you know, that make them comfortable. So I'm never going to have somebody, you know, get on the, the squat rack and do squats unless they are trained and comfortable with that. We can do other things that won't require that if that makes them uncomfortable.
0: Well, sounds great. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it was good to talk to you.
0: Thank you, Angie, for joining me to talk about your research around brain and movement and about your coaching business, Stellari Performance Training. As I said in the last episode, it means a lot to me every time I get to talk to female doctors, scientists, and researchers on the show. They're doing great work and increasing equity in their fields just by being there. It was an honor to have Angie as a guest. And of course, it's fun to know her as a friend because she is doing such cool stuff. And thanks to all of you for being here to listen. I hope you found something interesting enough in my conversation with Angie to tell lots of your friends. I'd love to hear what you think. Email Elizabeth at hearhersports.com or connect through socials at hearhersports. You can also reach me through the contact page on the website. Be sure to take a look at Angie's show notes page to find out more about her research, Stellari, and links to other things mentioned in the episode. In Motion is located on the east side of Cleveland, Ohio. So if you are in the area and know someone with Parkinson's disease, check them out. You can find that link in the show notes as well. Hear Her Sports is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts. For more information or to check out the other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. And until next time, bye-bye.